Hello and welcome everyone to our next lesson in the encounter. It's February 13th. This is lesson number 11. And for those of you that have never joined us before, I am Reverend Rebecca Sardi. Everybody calls me Becky. I am the director of ministry with women um, with the ministry council for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And along with me today is my beautiful cohort in crime. Beautiful. Sorry, I am Chris Fleming. I am the adult ministries coordinator for the ministry council of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And uh, I am the editor of the encounter. I'm more of a teacher than I am an encounter. So when you stumble across mistakes, please know um, it's I do my best. Um, Also with that, there is something uh, for those of you who tune in off and you're probably part of a church that has a standing order for the encounter. Um, The people that we use for printing, had some COVID issues and they had over half their staff gone for two weeks. And then they, uh, supply chain crisis is real, my friends. They ran on a paper. Um, and then we finally got those last week. And because of ice storms, bad weather, and the postal service, they have not run uh, mail service for the last couple of days there at the center. So we're, we've got everything ready to ship and it's ready to go. And, and you should have it before uh, the start of the new quarter. Uh, if for some reason that you do not get it, uh, please contact me at cfleming at cumberland.org, or you can uh, contact Cindy Martin, who is the uh, resource center, the director of the resource center there. And uh, that's C Martin, C-M-A-R-T-I-N at cumberland.org, or you can call the resource center and, and we will make sure that you get material. It'll probably be digital, um, but we'll make sure you get time to study, get time to be prepared. And uh, like I said, that you know, this is just something that's happened and it is beyond our control on that one. Um, we've been on the same timeline for years and, and we've been fine. It's just they, they ran out of paper and they, they couldn't do what they, they needed to do. So, um, so thank you for understanding. And then also, like I said, we'll do everything we possibly can uh, to make sure you get, get what you need to, to do a lesson. I assume everybody's going to be fine. It should not take three weeks to to get to you, but uh, stranger things have happened. So um, start there. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you'll hit a subscribe button down there, that'll help us out. Um, And then tell a friend, you know, that would help. And uh, okay. I think that's it by way of introduction for me, Reverend. Okay, very good. There was one other housekeeping issue that you wanted to take care of from last week. Is that correct? Okay. I did. we missed a, re- a uh, reference uh, on that last section. We got two of them. We did not know. On the applying the scripture section, there was a um, story from the Silver Linings playbook. That illustration needed to be uh, attributed to David Loth, and it was off of his blog at workingpreacher.com. And so uh, we wanted to apologize for that, too. So. Thank you for reminding okay. me of that. You're welcome. So now that we have all of our introductories out of the way and our housekeeping out of the way, let's dive into our lesson again for February 13th. Our scripture selection today comes from John chapter 6, verses 35 through 39. Our memory verse is John 6, 35. It says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Let's open with our prayer for illumination. Gracious God, we do not live by bread alone. Let the heavenly food of the scripture nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Amen. 
Book of Common so, Worship. Love it. Book of Common Worship. I do love that too. So bread, we're talking about bread today and Kit really brings us a great introduction talking about this wonderful bread company um, down in Austin, Texas. Yeah, it keeps and I, yeah. you know, okay, we'll let that go. So, so bread, I have to be honest, when I read through this, I was thinking, you know, that's true. Um, marketing wise uh, for food, um, restaurants, delis, bakeries, anything like that. They try to have the smell of fresh baked bread in the air all the time because studies have shown it makes us, it makes us hungrier, makes us salivate a little bit. And we're like, oh, fresh bread. There's nothing like the smell. And I can tell you when I make fresh bread, oh my goodness, it, it never lasts. It absolutely never lasts. I put all this hours and work and effort into make this that my children will like 30 seconds later it's gone. Um, They're just gone, just gone. And they love it. And even their friends that used to, when they came over, when they were in high school and stuff, the kids loved when I was making fresh bread and I never could keep it in the house. Cause if the, my kids' friends came over gone, it was just absolutely gone. They love fresh baked bread. Do you have any good memories of somebody in your life or a place that had really good bread? Yeah. Every meal is good bread. No, I (laughs) do. Um, so I recently brought, bought a bread machine, um, oh. which is kind of cheating, I guess, a little bit for those purists of bread, but um, I don't care. I make my own pizza dough, and and that's something that me and my daughter like to do together. Well, she doesn't like to make the dough. She likes the dough already ready, and then she likes to dress it up with the pizza sauce and pepperonis and things like that. Um, but I will say, I'm a true Southerner. Uh, biscuits and gravy are like prime rib for me, um, and a good biscuit chicken and dumplings, you know, any, anything with bread. I think that's, you know, but that's one of the reasons, if I remember correctly, reading on bread that we salivate and stuff when we smell bread. I mean, bread's been a staple for humanity. Um, and, and I saw a, uh, I, I've, I've studied this a little bit because it's interesting, but if you want to know about a culture, you can figure out how they make their bread or what type of bread it is and, and their beer. Like, cause these are yeah. two things that every single culture cultivates or has. And so yes. what types of beer, what ingredients they use in it, uh, how they ferment it, same thing with the bread, like what types of, what types of, you know, wheat or what types of flour, what types of whatever that they could get to make bread, what it rises, whether they yeast or not yeast, these kinds of things. So bread and beer, um, if you really want to know about ancient culture, you start there, bread, beer, and religion. That's right. That's <laughs> what it all boils down to that so talking about bread this is one of the things that kip really uses to segue us into this whole scripture reading because this is all about jesus talking about being the bread of life and that's where he hits in the beginning of the historical setting kip introduces us to another amazing section throughout this whole quarter we've been talking about uh the seven signs that jesus uses that are john uses throughout his entire writing, the the metaphorical language that John uses. But here's another way that John ties his writing together. And it's the seven I am statements, which Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if you're familiar with your scripture reading in your Old Testament, this should bring you all the way back to Exodus when Moses meets God on the mountain. And when Moses says, if I go, 
who am I supposed to say sent me? And God tells Moses, say that I am has sent you. So when Jesus says, I am the bread of life and the other six ones that he uses throughout John's writing, which is on the top of page 74, it should always take us back to this moment of meeting God on the mountain. And Kip just addresses it here. I don't think we've addressed it yet in our quarter so far. I think this is the first time that we've come into it, but that's something else important about keeping the cohesiveness to John's writing together. What'd you get out of this section, Chris? So yeah, the I am statements and the healing miracles, there's seven of each. There's signs that point to something. It, it, it reveals something about who Christ is. It identifies Christ with God. That's pretty important to John. Um, I've, I've said before, uh, we lose a lot when we try to um, take out symbolisms and meta symbolisms in our sanctuary or symbolisms in our worship or the rituals, because rituals aren't, they're not just rituals, they're symbols. Baptism, it's a symbol. It's more than a symbol. And like I've, you've heard the phrase, a symbol or a picture's worth a thousand words. And it's because symbols evoke your emotions, your thoughts, your present, your past. It helps you think about the future. So these I am statements and these uh, miracles are meant to, uh, to be that, to play on, to help you meditate more on things. Um, so um, I think that's important. Now, one of the best teachings that I'd ever heard uh, about this, uh, like the sevens, the signs, and the, in the way the Bible uses uh, sevens, you know, in the, there's six days and the seventh day's rest. Then you have seven years and then, and then you, and then you have like the 49 years and the Jubilee year with the Sabbath stuff. The Bible is all about some sevens and some threes. Um, yeah. anyway, um, what's the guy's name from the Bible project? Tim Mackey. Tim Mackey. Mm -hmm. You go into YouTube or wherever and type in uh, Bible project, uh, sevens. Uh, they have a really good lesson on that. Uh, and just the amount of times that numbers and different things are used in scripture. And it is important. I think, um, we're, we're in a culture that doesn't really care much maybe about that kind of thing. There years ago, there was something called the Bible code. That was kind of like a yeah, fad, yeah. fad study, but yeah. that being said, um, the use of the numbers are on purpose. Like the, it's not just coincidence. And, and Tim Mackey does a really good job in that to, mm -hmm. to at least think about that. Um, mm -hmm. But specifically when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, here's the last thing I'll, this is the last um, box I'll chase or rabbit trail I'll go down. Um, I, I teach a world religions class or a comparative religions class. And one of the most fascinating things that I've learned in my, um, in my study is the um, creation myths or creation stories of different religions. And almost every single one of them have something about um, water, bread, corn, or, or wind or something like that. Anyway, these elements are just um, bread, especially for our culture. I've said before in the, in the introduction, like by saying I am the bread of life, what Jesus is saying is I am the source of, of your civilization. I'm the source of your your everyday life. I'm the source of you, the people gathering around your table. I mean, I'm the all in all, essentially. The sustenance. I mean, just yes. think about how many cultures depend on bread or some sort of carbohydrate for sustenance. Yeah, corn you know, was a big this, one this in Native is, American culture. 
Yep. Yep. And Asian cultures, it's rice, right? You know, so this is something that sustains life. This is a life giving object. Right. Yeah. So that's important. Like, yeah, I think uh, of all the tribe, I think every single native American tribe in their creation story revolves around corn in some way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. So because that was the life-giving substance yeah. for them. And, and I agree with you. I think we're in a time frame in our culture where we don't recognize the importance of symbolism. It's important. Let's not, let's not say that it's not because it is important. We just don't, as a culture, recognize the importance. But we but are when now. You see, sure. When, when you see golden arches. Right. You don't. You don't even have to say the name right. of the company because the symbol is ingrained in your mind of this is what golden arches represents. Well, think you know, about this is yeah. Go ahead. I was so think about it. You were so in a lot of churches, uh, symbolism people try to you know hide their symbolism to make it more accessible, but then also think about what's going on in our society. Have you heard of anybody fighting over I don't know statues or symbols? in our world because symbols mean Maybe. something they actually mean something <laughs> right yes yeah whether we like to think it it does or not it's very important um for the way that we just work that symbols they represent something to us whether that's the cross or whether that's a fish or whatever symbol means something to you um about your christianity you know i love the Cumberland Presbyterian logo. I love what it represents and it stands for. And I love seeing it um, because to me, it's a beautiful representation of the body of Christ. So yeah, symbols, symbols are important. They're important too, because they, they, they allow freedom in the sense of when you think of a cross, you have a very contextualized and personalized story of who Jesus Christ is. It can also really mean redemption, but for you, it takes a lot more meaning or a different meaning, probably maybe not a lot more but it means something to you that it doesn't necessarily mean to me in its specifics or in its detail. Our salvation stories are different. Um, and, and I'd say if you're in your Sunday school class and you ask people to, to ask or ask them why the cross meant, you know, so much to them, they're going to have nuanced things and that symbolism is going to be different or like mm -hmm. even as little as why do Catholics have a crucifix, you know, with the body of Christ mm -hmm. on it, but then we Protestants have an empty cross. Um, so symbols do mean something and they reinforce yeah. things. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then Kip goes on in this section talking about first you have the miracle that happens and then there's always a lesson that comes behind it. And here we have now the tension is starting to grow as, as, as the story of Jesus progresses through John's book, you have this tension that's building, building up and here this tension is beginning to grow. And Kip ends this section with a really great discussion question, something that I, I loved. His last, um, is it two questions? Last two questions on our discussion. He says, if you're in the crowd and hear Jesus talking about him being the bread of life, where do you fall? And if you say you believe in him, what convinces you? And then Kip says, and remember that you don't have any of the Bible to support your answer. I loved that. Because too many times when we start reading about these New Testament characters, we're like, well, why didn't they get it? Well, they didn't have a New Testament. All they had was the Old Testament scriptures. And if they were uneducated, 
then they didn't even have the history of uh, other than the oral tradition that they may have picked up, especially if they were women um, who were not educated at all. Most women were not educated at all. So they have the nuances through the Old Testament scripture that hopefully they pick up on um, when that brings. So I'm not sure if, if I were a woman of that time standing in that crowd, I don't know if Jesus said I was the bread of life, that I would really understand the nuances that he's bringing in from the Old Testament, just because of the yeah. status I would have had as a woman back then. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Jesus has always played pretty well with the underserved. Mm -hmm. first. But, you know, I don't know why. Like today, I guess when I say that today, everybody has a chance to know their Bible, but it's still the those who feel um, underrepresented feel sure. like they're have a connection with Jesus. And I think it's because it's the character of the life of Jesus. Um, is it John 2, where um, when I think of bread, I think of, of uh, appetizers and tasting. And, and then I think <laughs> of John 2, where honestly, you know, come and see or, you yeah. know, experience it, try it, see what happens. Yeah. I think that's the only way I could answer that question. If you don't have your Bible, uh, then the only thing is you see the fruits of this person, you know, yeah. So um, taste and see that the Lord is good from Psalms. Right. And I think mm -hmm. that's how you do it. Uh, so when he says I'm the bread of life, he's making a statement, but he's also saying, you know, consume me, see, see if mm -hmm. this is good bread. Almost so like invite the people. Yeah. Yeah. So invite people to your dinner table. Hospitality is a big thing. Yeah. Hospitality so, is a huge thing. I mean, you know, somebody after you eat with them, after you break sure. bread together. Yes. It's a very intimate, I think eating together is a very intimate act that you're sharing this, this food together. Um, and it's, and it brings you into this relationship that you wouldn't otherwise have, which is why I think the beginning church, it's why it started around tables and people's homes. They broke bread together. They had a conversation. Anything else in that section? That was a good conversation. Not for me. Okay. So let's dig deeper let's do it. let's dig deep into this. let's let's dig deeper so what did you get out of the digging deeper section so i do like the fact that uh i mean kip brings up that exodus he brings up this exodus imagery of of like um the people starting to grumble uh yeah. just like when you say the i am statements you should think of moses and the this this whole section is a throwback to um how people uh, especially in the Exodus, God, they wanted food and bread, which I don't like, I don't knock them. I mean, when I get hungry, I want food and bread too. Right. And so they, sure. um, at the top of page 75, there was a time when God's people were beginning to quote unquote, beginning to grumble ages ago. And it appears they are at it again. Um, and then he talks about that Exodus story. Um, so anyway, it happens. And so I guess, um, there's this sense when in the reflection question, the last question of that reflection question on 75, do you ever get the feeling that Jesus really doesn't care about how people feel about him? And I guess maybe, you know, God in the old Testament, you know, was, was doing the good thing, right. Leading the people to the promised land. Sure. Um, in some sense, did God care a whole bunch about, grumbling Israelites who were slave and going to a promised land. Yeah, of course he did. But man, I guess, you know, it's like, 
Uh, be respectful of the the power that's bringing you to something good. And then maybe there's this same thing to where Jesus just fed these people, but then he's not doing it now. And so they begin to grumble, but Jesus is on a mission. Like, and his mission isn't to physically fulfill people, although that is a goal. It's a spiritual thing. It's we're going to the promised land again. So I think there's a reflection there. I think he cares. Yes. But I think the battle is that we should care about the things that God cares about. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I think Kip says here, it seems misunderstanding and rejection of God is a consist is as consistent as him providing for his people. The people just don't get it. Right. Are we any different today? Not at all. No, <laughs> no. <laughs> we are not. We still grumble and complain when we don't get what we want. Um, and yet here we are again, where God still loves us and cares about us and continues to work through our lives and minister to us through other people that we meet. And yet we're just like the Israelites whining that we want more meat or cucumbers and melons that were back in Egypt, whatever, you know, it happens to be, you know? Yeah. We're just, we just, we're consistently not satisfied with what we have which I yeah. think is part of, unfortunately, part of our human nature. Yeah. So John chapter six, for me, this has always been my struggle in my little Calvinism and my little Arminianism slash whatever you want to call it, free willism. Um, this is a passage I've always gone into to where like, if you read all of John six, it's just, it comes down to basically the crowd says this is impossible. And then Jesus says, you know, you can't understand it unless it's given to you. Right. But anyway, yeah, and I say that to get into this eat my flesh, drink my blood part, because mm -hmm. that's when things go off the rails. Yes. So it's in this passage when, you know, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And again, that's easy for us because like we've gone to church and we're like, take and we get that drink the blood, you know, but like they're wanting to eat. <laughs> he says, here you go. Here's some flesh and flesh and blood and that that rocks people and they don't know what to do oh man can you imagine being part of the crowd back then again not having the new testament just the old testament references what are you talking about like we can't do that the Torah says no <laughs> right you know and I think it goes back, like a lot of times we said too, like scripture uses these physical descriptions to jar us. So like, you know, I've said this with Abraham and Isaac, when God says, kill Isaac, and we think, oh, that is so terrible. Yeah, it is. But picking up your cross and following Christ is pretty terrible too, right? Or, or so like when, when Christ calls for an absolute uh, unadulterated allegiance to him, eating flesh and blood sounds terrible. Well, yeah, but so is picking up your cross and following, but Jesus really means sure. it. Like I am your source of life. And if you don't eat me, then you'll die. And so yeah. that's pretty, pretty tough, but he gets his point across evidently because some of the disciples walk away. Yeah. And a lot of the people walk away because it's too, it was too difficult for them to understand. It was too difficult for them to comprehend what it was that he was telling them which was that he himself he was the source of their life he was their bread he was the one that was going to sustain them 
if they partook of him, meaning that they were part of him and part of his life. And like you said, picking up your cross and following him, which um, was hard to, which was hard to follow. That was, that was a difficult thing for a lot of people. Even today, I think it's a difficult thing for people to understand. So I was going to say, I mean, it's not like the early Christians here, or whatever disciples didn't figure it out. That was one of the reasons. So one of the stories of the Reformation, when uh, Martin Luther and Hoderick Zwingli uh, wanted to try to get together. So Zwingli is kind of like the, the I will say, the granddaddy of, of uh, the Reformed tradition, kind of. He was a Switzerland mercenary, actually, go figure. Uh, and then, uh, of course, Martin Luther, you know, Lutheranism. Um, yeah. They tried to get together and uh, band, band together, and they could not agree on the Lord's Supper. Um, now, neither of them, Kip will talk about, I don't know if it's in this one, I think it's later on, the Catholics believed in consubstantiation where like the bread and the, or transubstantiation, where the bread and the, and the wine turn into the body and the literal body and blood of Christ. Protestants right. didn't do that, neither Luther or Zwingli. We'll talk about this later, but um, Zwingli also kind of saw it as a memorial to where there was not necessarily any spiritual happening with it. Like it was like in the same way we shoot off fireworks to commemorate July 4th, we take communion as Christians to hearken back to that act which Christ did. And then Martin Luther said, no. In fact, he carved in, like Martin Luther got there early and he carved, this is my body, this is my blood on the communion, on the table they're going to use for communion. And so then when Zwingli disagreed with him, he pulls off the cover and said, this is my body, this is my blood, you know, because Martin Luther was, was a drama queen sometimes, but a good one. <laughs> a little extra. He was a little yeah. extra. Uh, but anyway, um, the, but so that was the thing. And, and we'll, we'll talk about it later. But so it is hard. Like, yeah, we talk about some technicalities of it because we have the New Testament that interprets the body and blood as bread and juice. They didn't. Yes. I mean, Jesus really told them, you know, eat my body, drink my blood. Um, yeah. So, yeah, that's a hard one. And I think. Kip really hits off on that too with a discussion question on the end of the section because he yeah. asks us, do you find John's metaphorical language hard to follow? And how do we consume Jesus, God's word incarnate today? And I think that's a great one if you're a Sunday school teacher or just doing this on your own to really uh, ponder and think about that. Metaphorical language, because our culture does not tend to use a lot of metaphorical language, sometimes can be really hard to follow. And yeah. sometimes what John is talking about is difficult, but how do we consume Jesus? How do we do that today? Um, you know, again, I think that's going to go back to um, what your particular belief is. And we're going to talk about the four different uh, views of communion here in a little bit. Um, but how do, how do we do that on a daily basis? How do we consume uh, God's word. Hopefully you're studying every day. That's, that's a spiritual discipline, um, which is a beautiful thing, which actually daily is what we're going to talk about next and learning from the scripture, the witness of the church talking about, um, Jesus says, in, or Kip says on the last sentence of that first paragraph says, but today Jesus bids us to think of him as bread 
as a meal, as that daily life-giving, sustaining presence that keeps us going daily, daily. And our culture, and we've talked about this before, in our culture, we have relegated our spiritual journey and our spiritual moments uh, to one day a week, that Sunday, um, when you have church. Um, if you go to Sunday school, that means you have two hours. If you don't go to Sunday school, that means you have an hour. And in our culture, that's what we've relegated our time frame to, to devote ourselves to God. Um, but we know as a maturing Christians that this is a daily walk, that it's every day, all day. Um, but we have kind of lost that aspect, I think, in our culture somewhat. And Jesus is saying, you know, I am the bread of life. Again, going back to their culture, this was a life-giving substance that was always common elements on the table, wine and bread were two very common elements on the table. So that daily purpose, what do you think about that? Um, like the way you're saying it, I'll say this, um, Kip in the second paragraph of page 77, he says, what is your image of Jesus? For some, Jesus is the bleeding body hanging on a cross. He just hangs there for others. He is the one who sits on high god enthroned in heaven but jesus urges those gathered to see him as bread he is the bread that satisfies when satisfies you and nothing else can but i think the other thing is is it makes jesus earthy it makes him right it brings in other words to have a to have a real good christian faith it needs to be daily it can't be theoretical that there's this principle of salvation on a cross or this principle of god reigning in heaven but Christ focuses on the dirty stuff. He's the incarnate God, right? Uh, and so our spirituality is earthy. It's also heavenly, but it's worked out down here in the trenches. Um, yeah. And so I think that that's how I get that. I mean, it, you can't divorce your life, this earth, your physical bodies. You can't divorce um, your families from what happens in heaven or, or as you know, the Lord's prayer as done in heaven here on earth, this daily bread, like, right. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we get a little too theoretical in religion. And so we can, so we can relegate it to one hour a week, right. Or or we can relegate it to just discussions or debates, but Jesus says, no, it's, it's a daily life-giving thing. Yeah. It's a daily struggle. It's, it's taking of that sustenance every day to help us move forward and move through the day. And I know we've talked about this many times on, on our conversations about how it's our normal, ordinary daily life that we share the gospel message with other people, that we should be living out that gospel message. Becky, talking about yeah. this daily spirituality stuff. Yeah. Is there an opportunity coming up for young adults in our denomination? There is an opportunity. Shameless plug, um, Chris and I are teaming together to do a young adult cohort on spiritual disciplines. This will begin on April 28th, will be our first initial meeting. Uh, We will have weekly meetings via Zoom, and then we are going to get together in person, face-to-face, yay, in July for a week, and I can never say the name of that town. Chuckalahitchie. Thank you, Chuckalahitchie. Golly, that's a hard word. Tuckalahitchie Retreat Center up in the Smoky Mountains. Um, so if you are a young adult and if you are interested in participating, I think it's $75 is the registration cost. 
Um, and you can go to cpcmc.org forward slash YA cohorts. We are the second one listed on that page, and we would love for you to participate with us in this beautiful time. I think we've Thank entitled it Developing Holy Habits, or no, A Life-Giving Way. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember. I just remember the picture is barbells because we're doing some, we're doing some discipline there. Okay. Anyway, so good, good segue to that. So going back to the life-giving, I love how Kip ends this whole section. He's talked about this, this story from William Willimon. And he says, like a stale donut and a cold cup of coffee, when you are starving, Jesus's body is the bread that is broken so that those who receive it may be made whole. Jesus's life is offered so that those who receive it may be sustained in this life and live eternally. And I really thought that was a beautiful story. I mean, it doesn't sound beautiful, a stale donut and a cold cup of coffee, but in the, in the story that Kip quotes in here in the writing for today, I don't think there's anything more beautiful than oh, a cell donut and a cold cup of coffee. No, no. When you're hungry, bread's good. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And he asked some really good reflection questions on the end of this. It's the bottom um, two that I'm curious about. Becky, okay, what shoot. was the most meaningful communion moment you've ever had and what mm. made it so memorable? I'd like to know. Okay, so I have two um, communion moments that really stick out in my mind. Number one was my ordination service. That was a good one. That was a beautiful one. Um, maybe to, I don't know if to anybody else, but to me, the the opportunity to be able to serve and preside over that sacred and special meal was not only beautiful, but very weighty because there's a, there's a seriousness, a significance, a huge significance to this meal that was just like sitting on my shoulders. But at the same moment, it was so beautiful to be able to share that meal and to be able to serve my friends my family, I had my parents there, my in-laws were there, my parents' pastor was there. Yeah. Um, and the fact that I got to serve them communion to me was just outstanding. I mean, I just, I had, I remember I just cried. I know you told me like, were you there? would you please quit crying? I cried the whole time. I'm pretty sure it was crazy. But the other one that really sticks out in my mind was when I came back to church um, after my 10 years of running away and I came back to church um, it was candlelight communion on Christmas Eve. And that was another mm-hmm. time. It just, it hit me so hard. It was just a come and go communion. Um, but I think I sat in the pew for over a half hour and just cried because I was just so moved by God's spirit and what he does in my life and the forgiveness that he offered me. And to be able to share that meal with others was huge. It was beautiful. Yeah. I remember you forget communion. That was nice. That was nice. I was so what first, about you? Um, so there were two, again, for me, two, I would say. There's probably more. And I didn't even think about the first time I served communion. Um, that was pretty special, too, I'm sure. I just can't remember most <laughs> of the night. Um, but, so the first one for me that, like, uh, and it just jarred me because it added an extra sense. It was a sensory thing. So, like, uh, when I was in Bible college, I went to um, a Bible college in Knoxville, Tennessee, they had a really big uh, PCA church, Good Springs, or Good Springs, I think it was Good Springs Presbyterian Church. 
that um, I was associated with for a little while. And, you know, they had a sanctuary that sat like 15, 1800 people. Like, and the way they did communion, it was a uh, Monday, Thursday. And um, anyway, you know, it took them like 15 minutes to pass communion out to all those people anyway. And they had the big wafers, almost like Catholic wafers. Yeah. But everybody knew, I mean, you could tell that they, so anyway, when the pastor said, this is my body broken for you, right when he said broken, there was 1500 wafers that snapped at the same time. Oh, and, wow. And so it, it was already, you know, because it's Good Friday or it's Monday, Thursday, I guess what it was a Good Friday. I can't remember. But when just, I, it was like lightning on, I mean, it, it was just this snap and it brought me to a place I'd never been before in communion because wow. I, 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 I internalized this body snapping that, uh, anyway, I carried that with me then. So if you went to Margaret Hang Church, you learned to snap your uh, bread when I said body broken for you. And, uh, sure. so anyway, that was one. And, and it just, it just shocked me. It shocked me out of a, of a normal thing to think deeper. Um, and then the second one, uh, cause even when I was not a Christian, I would go to, uh, candlelight communion service with my family. And so like, anyway, I carried, I carried that tradition on too. And, uh, I used to take one of my friends with me. It used to be in the youth group. We didn't do like the, I always loved midnight services, midnight masses yeah. or whatever. So anyway, um, we went downtown Nashville together to the Episcopal church and, uh, the Episcopal still use wine. Right. So this is like a 14 year old kid that's with me at the time. I'm 20 something. Um, and we go up to take it. And I knew I didn't, I just forgot to tell him that this was not going to be great for you. It's like you would get a terminal <laughs> Presbyterian church. They've never had any type of alcohol or anything before. So, in the same way that that sound snapped me into something deeper, when he took that, he choked and he was like, my, he was like, that sting so bad. Um, anyway, afterwards on our way home, he was like, man, I, I wasn't expecting that. And I'm, I'm like, well, did it, did it jar you? And he's like, yeah, I mean, like it, it added another sense to it that there was something um, that he, anyway, those are just two. And I think for me, it's yeah. just, I'm, again, I'm not an emotional cat. So like whenever something is added, some new information is added for me that I have to stop and think about it. Uh, it, it makes something more meaningful to me. Wow. So yeah, yeah those I'm were just, fun. I'm, I'm, I'm like, I can almost hear craziest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> wow. And yeah. how impactful would that be? That's amazing. It was crazy. So share your stories today in your class, share your favorite memorable communion stories. It's just beautiful to know that we have um, that opportunity to share those together. And speaking of communion, let's jump into applying the scripture where Kip really gets into some different views of communion. He talks about transubstantiation and consubstantiation and what we believe as Cumberland Presbyterians. But Chris, you really want to talk about there's four different views of communion. Yeah. So what are those four views? So I would love to do this. I would love to, um, I might do this. We might write a, a five or six week study on uh, Holy Communion so that our churches know a little bit more. But historically speaking, so you had the early church and this happened like early. So it wasn't uh it wasn't just like a Catholic invention in like 400 AD, but you would have what was called the uh, transubstantiation view. And it was officially then like sanctioned in like 1200 AD, somewhere around there. Um, but when the priest blesses the elements, the elements turn into, the teaching is the, the elements turn into the actual body and blood 
of Jesus Christ. And so like they are fulfilling what you would say in John six, eating the body of Christ, the flesh of Christ and drinking the blood of Christ. Um, and in so doing, they connect it with the forgiveness of sins also in a lot of ways. So it is a true sacrament in every sense, like in, in, in some sense, you're, you're foretaking. Then you have the consubstantiation view, which is the Martin Luther thing, right? So, um, Martin Luther didn't believe that any human being ordained or not had the power to change physical substances into something new. And so, um, that was kind of one of the difference. Uh, but he didn't totally reject the idea that the body and blood are present, but he taught that the body and blood of the Lord are within and under the elements. So uh, in, above, around, on, whatever, um, but it still, you don't partake of the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ. You are taking on, in some sense, uh, as close to the Catholics as you can without eating Jesus's flesh. Okay. And then you have the memorial view. And this is part, this is one, there are a lot of churches. Most churches probably don't do either the transubstantiation view or the consubstantiation view in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. The two that are probably recognized the most in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, if you're, if you're in a place that's heavily Baptist, or if you have a pastor that's Baptist, or you Baptist in their theology, or group, but it's not a pejorative term. Um, but anyway... <laughs> Most Baptist and most uh, country churches, I would say country, even just a lot of our churches take this view, which is the memorial view, right? To where the emphasis on is what on it is what it commemorates, right? So like mm-hmm. when you take, it's just blood and it's just, I mean, it's just grape juice or wine and it's just bread and you take it. There's not nothing necessarily spiritual happening in the sense of you're not necessarily receiving any forgiveness. You're not... Uh, changed in your in your spiritual life you're just commemorating the fact that you've been saved by Jesus Christ on the cross Mm -hmm. right so you're Mm -hmm. celebrating and remembering that Um, so in some sense that's that right and then you have the reform view and this is John Calvin and what I'd say the other understanding of of um, communion that you have in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church and so it completely John Calvin rejected the fact that there was any physical presence in the elements, just like, you know, the memorial view, but Calvin emphasized the spiritual presence of Christ. Um, it was a, what he would call a dynamic presence through the power of the Holy Spirit. So in the reform view, Christ's sacrificial death is applied and made, me, made meaningful to the believer who participates in communion with an attitude of faith and trust in Christ. So it's higher than that um, memorial view in that if you bring faith to it, Christ is present, spiritually present in the bread and the grape and the grape juice or the juice, and you partake him spiritually if you bring faith to it. But mm-hmm. like if you don't have faith, then it's a it's a pointless act, according to Calvin. You know, so um, so there's the differences. Again, most of us will fall in the memorial view that Christ doesn't even necessarily, I mean, he could be around and we're just celebrating the fact that Christ, but he's not spiritually present in the bread or anything at all either. And it's, and it's not attached to salvation. And then the the reform view would be that Christ is, is spiritually present in those Mm -hmm. when, when it's blessed. And then if you have faith, it ministers and inspires you, but it also doesn't 
contribute to your salvation. Uh, it's a sacramental in the sense that it inspires you to grow closer to God, but it doesn't it doesn't change your guilty or not guilty before God kind of thing. Right, right. So that's what and I got confession for you. And okay, in our confession of faith in 5.24, Kip says, the elements used in this sacrament are the bread and the fruit of the vine, which represent the body and blood of Christ. The elements themselves are never to be worshiped for they are never anything other than bread and the fruit of the vine. And then we have, as you said, we have a variety of ways to interpret exactly what that means, but that's what I'm our reform guy on that for sure. Like I, I don't like, I'm more than a memorialist in that sense. I think sure. that you're doing something more than just commemorating. I think you're having a, an actual honest to goodness communion meal with the saints of all times and all places. Yeah. That's what I believe. You know, I I'm with you on that one. Is the body is, I mean, is the bread, is the juice in that spiritual way. Yeah. You know, and I think that's one way that I've learned to look at communion and the, I guess the older I've gotten, the more mature in my faith that I have gotten more gray hair that I've gotten. Um, <laughs> the way I see communion now is the fact that I am gathered around this table, participating in a meal that has been shared together for the last 2000 years. And I am sharing this meal with all of my brothers and sisters all the way back, you know, and just, and to me, that's a beautiful presence of recognizing that all of us as believers have gathered around this table to share this meal together yeah. this body and blood of christ calvin love, and the catholics uh, and the uh really i guess the, the lutherans too they would understand that when you have communion you're having it with the church of all times and all places the memorial view not necessarily because you're just commemorating something but those other three uh -huh. views you're having communion with the saints who died you know stephen the martyr or john the revelator you're right. you're partaking together with the the mystical communion or the mystical body of Christ. Sure. Sure. And I think there, there's definitely an el element of uh, oh, some mysticism. I did. <laughs> but I'm bummed. There's, <laughs> there's definitely something there to, to be said about that as well. So he ends this section and we're going to kind of wind down our conversation today with this great discussion questions of how we would have understood what Jesus was saying. And do we understand it now? And then he says, be creative and describe the type of bread Jesus is and why. Think outside of the box. And I wrote down when I was reading through all this that, you know, people are hungry. He ends this with the last paragraph before the discussion. He says, we know about hunger. We know that gnawing feeling in the pit of stomach when we go without food. We also know that gnawing pain is in the heart of the soul. People are hungry today, not just for bread. God has called and Jesus is offering hope, not answers, but hope. All one has to do is believe. And I thought when I was thinking about communion, the, those, those discussion questions, you know, people are hungry. We have a starving world out here, not just starving for food, but starving for a life giving sustenance for Jesus Christ and how do we, $10 million question, how do we share that living our life? How do we share that beautiful meal with others? And I think we kind of touched on it before when we talked about hospitality, this radical idea of inviting others to partake in this meal with you, of come in and see, 
taste and see that the Lord is good, you come, invite you to come with me, come and see for yourself just how amazing Jesus is. Yeah. It's what a, do you think? Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think uh, we should understand that if, if we're going to contribute to the breaking down of barriers that are being made right now, it's going to be through dinner. It's going to be through fellowship, through meals, through, um, through that. I am curious, though, what type of bread would Jesus be for you, Becky? Mm. Oh, gosh. Sourdough. <laughs> A good, a good, because there's nothing better to me than a good homemade sourdough bread. And sourdough doesn't necessarily mean that it's sour. I mean, there are some sourdoughs that are sour. It is just the starter that is used. It's a sourdough starter. It's fermented. And there's nothing better to me than good sourdough bread. I am going with a good pizza dough whatever pizza you would yeah because like you can build on that it's a foundation just like jesus it's a foundation (laughs) but you can build all kinds of interesting good life-giving things sure sure yeah i can make sandwich sourdough same put all sorts of stuff in that sandwich (laughs) i could make a what is it calzone Uh, yeah a calzone Mm -hmm. yep you sure could that's awesome oh my goodness um so y'all thanks for being here and then uh, becky you got anything else i'm i'm good be blessed this week enjoy and take and eat for the (laughs) lord is good be blessed